Well, welcome back um, to this class. Last time I spoke about uh, two things. First of all, we began defining the state, the nation, the ethnic group, the differences between them and the connections between them. Uh, and then the second lecture, we talked about theories of nationalism, which I tried to, to, to show involves these connections. So one theory says that the nation is more created by the state from above. And the other theory, uh, typically the ethno-symbolist theory, argues that it's from below, if you like, from the ethnic group to the nation. Uh, tends to be more of the trajectory, what forms nations. And within that, you had different motivations. So the state-to-nation type model is more involving political and economic motivations, particularly elite motivations, and the uh, ethnic group donation model is more associated with the ethno-symbolist position that it is myths, memories, uh, and culture that tend to reproduce in nations over time. So that means that national identities are harder to invent and create and change very quickly. They're more deeply rooted. Whereas for the modernists who believe that it's political and economic shifts incentives that create nations, it's easier to, to shift the content of nationalism more rapidly over time. What I'm now going to do with this discussion of multi-ethnicity uh, multi within states is to move back a little bit to that first session where we talked about state, nation, and ethnic group and to say, well, what happens when we start to interact these three components? So we can start to talk about several nations within one state. So the Scots, the Welsh, uh, the English within Britain, or we can talk about uh, a number of ethnic groups within one nation, uh, Irish, Chinese, African-Americans, for example. Um, so this idea of multi-ethnic nation, multinational state is one of the focuses that we're going to be looking at today. So the interaction between these three units that we talked about in the first session. Okay. So we talked about the state, which is the, a unit maintaining the, uh, a monopoly on the use of force within a territory, both in terms of the internal policing and in terms of external defense. Uh, I'm not going to go into much detail on these, by the way, because we've covered them already. Ethnic group. Uh, the key to an ethnic group was this belief in shared ancestry uh, marked out by a particular marker, such as language, race, or religion, which did, uh, marks your group off from other groups. And then um, we didn't get into this as much. This is a, a way of thinking about ethnicity in terms of two types of ethnic group. On the one hand, your indigenous or native ethnic groups, which, which were uh, Erickson, or sorry, um, E.K. Francis has designated as primary ethnic groups. So primary <coughs> refers to a kind of native or indigenous ethnic group, such as the English in England, the Maori of New Zealand, who believe that their ancestors have a link to the particular territory they're living in. So their myths and memories are on the soil that they're living in. And I have a few other ex examples there <coughs> as well. Uh, Zulus of KwaZulu Natal, etc. Ethnic groups living in, in what they consider to be a home, an ethnic homeland. That would be what uh, Francis would term a primary ethnic group. And then there, uh, there are what are known as secondary ethnic groups, which 
you can think of here immigrant group, diaspora groups, which consider themselves to be native to somewhere else, and their myths and memories of origin are in another territory, and I've listed here, so Irish Americans, British Pakistani, and so on. Groups who don't tend to have that sense of indigenousness to a particular territory. That actually matters quite a bit in terms of the, of the way nationalism unfolds. It's hard to imagine uh, British Pakistanis, for example, mounting a secessionist claim in Britain because they don't have that same uh, sense of being indigenous to a particular spot or particular territory which they might want to break away from Britain. Whereas, if you think of the Scots in Britain or if you think of the Irish uh, in Britain before 1922, uh, very clearly a different story there. Groups, groups that have a sense of being native and therefore might want to make a, a self-determination claim, uh, claim to national self-determination. So it's an important distinction to consider between the sort of native or primary ethnic group and the uh, diaspora or secondary uh, ethnic group. Um, now, this is uh, basically what I've tried to do here is to graphically represent, and I've, I know I've done a, a bad job because this is sort of ancient software, and, um, but to try, to try and think about uh, what happens when, when we interact, begin to interact those units I spoke about, the, the state, the nation, the ethnic group, right? So um, if we want to talk about uh, interacting the ethnic group and the state, so multi-ethnic state, it's a fact that about 95% of the world's roughly 200 countries have more than one ethnic group in them. There's only 5% that are basically homogenous like Korea. So you've got a very few states that are homogenous. So in most countries, you've got some issue to do with multi-ethnicity. Just a question of how much diversity there is there. Um, actually, most of the world's states also have an ethnic majority group. So it's, it's more a case of the size of the mi minority. There are a few states like Liberia that don't have an ethnic mi majority or Lebanon, but um, most states do. So uh, the multi-ethnic state, what, what I've tried to show here is how we might think about primary and secondary ethnic groups, which is the, um, the native and the immigrant groups. Hang on, let me get this pointer out if I can. Yeah, okay, hopefully you can see that. Uh, so if you imagine this, the big square to be a state, consider you could think of it as Britain I mean, in a crude way, and then these straight line designations to be national territories demarcating nations such as, say, Scotland, Wales, England, and so on, fictively. Um, that's not to say the borders of nations are always sharp and straight like that. In fact, they, they are fuzzier than would be the case for a state. Um, but what you can see is you can have a situation where you can have several nations within one state, multinationality, and then within the each particular nation, you might have different kinds of ethnicity. So you could have uh, a situation such as B here. Now, notice that's a circle, which suggests a certain territorial compactness to a group. And that would tend to be characteristic only of um, primary or native ethnic groups. It's very rare you get a diaspora group that really clumps together compactly in a homeland territory in, in the place where it arrives. It's not impossible. Um, maybe if we think about the uh, Cajuns of Louisiana and the US, there's a group that kind of migrated in and settled in a compact 
territory, but that's kind of unusual. So uh, typically that would be a primary ethnic group. These sort of blocks like D and B are referring to native ethnic groups in their particular homelands. But notice that, that a group like that can be nested within a nation, within a state. So you can get you know, primary ethnic diversity within a nation, within a state. It's, it's certainly possible. I know that's starting to, to be difficult to, to comprehend, but um, it's, or you can get that immigrant or diaspora ethnic diversity. That's easier to understand. Perhaps you can see in England here, uh, you know, in this room, I'm sure, many different ethnic backgrounds. So multiple ethnic identities within the English nation, within the British state. Is certainly possible. I've tried to represent the secondary groups as more interspersed, more spread out, because they tend to be uh, migrants and diaspora. So they, they tend to move to cities more often, and they tend to spread out more uh, within, you know, following cities. They, they aren't clumped together like the uh, indigenous groups are. Um, so just, that's a way of graphically perhaps representing that. That's not to say, by the way, that all indigenous groups are neatly, compactly territorialized. Even if they have a home base, there'll often be uh, secondary movements and migrations away from the home base. So in Kenya, for example, you, know, you might have um, an ethnic group like the Kikuyu, which might be based in the east, but then members of that group might also migrate west and settle elsewhere. So you also have a secondary movement of the group as well as a primary. So you can get groups that are both have a homeland, but then also are dispersed elsewhere. But it's just to say there are all these complex interactions between uh, ethnicity, nation, and state, and they actually matter a lot for the kinds of conflicts that we, ex we might expect to see. Um, okay. Uh, so we talked about a nation, which is kind of, to some extent, has characteristics of both the ethnic group and the state. So it has a sense of territory, which has to be more delineated than is the case with an ethnic group. It has to occupy that territory, at least most, for the most part. And also, um, it has a sense of uh, shared history and memories alongside, and a sense of common culture. So that's, that's the nation, to some extent a hybrid then of ethnicity and the state, but also with the added element of uh, political aspiration and also an integration. Uh, okay, so if we're thinking about it, you might even think about your own uh, identity, your own ethnic, your own national, your own state identities. And in fact, we'll try and approach this question in the seminar, sort of how would you categorize yourself in these three terms. Uh, and it can be confusing. And I, I'm, each year I do this exercise, I'm always surprised at um, some of the answers I get. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying there is a right or a wrong answer, but still, uh, based on the definitions I offered in the first week, we can think think about groups as being, in some cases, you can have a group that is ethnic but not national. So if you think of the Jews before 1948 especially, the Jews were a diaspora. So they were an ethnic group with a, a myth of common ancestry. The cultural marker, which was their religion, much more so than their language, their religion was distinct. Uh, so they were an ethnic group, but they were not national in that they didn't have that sense of territoriality uh, and that an, an occupation of a historic territory. However, with the state of Israel, then you do get the emergence then of that uh, Israeli nationhood, 
Um, but that you, just to see that difference between ethnicity and nationality, you can get groups that are uh, both ethnic and national. Somebody who is ethnically Welsh, uh, who has Welsh ancestry living in Wales, would identify themselves as being of um, Welsh by ethnicity by na and by nationality, British by statehood. Uh, but you could be Welsh <coughs> by nationality, but not Welsh by ethnicity or by ancestry. So you could be a descendant of uh, immigrants who came from Ireland and Wales who went to particularly southern Wales in the 19th century to work in the mines. So that might be your, your, your ethnic identity might not be Welsh, and you might have a surname like Smith or O'Reilly or, or not a very Welsh-sounding name, probably. But yet you would have, you might identify with the Welsh rugby team and, and see yourself. You might be a Welsh nationalist and vote for Plaid Cymru. Um, so you could still be a Welsh national and then yet at the same time also uh, British in terms of your citizenship and state identity. So there are th those different levels then. Uh, but in other cases actually such as in Japan or Korea where you have a very neat l uh, link between ethnicity, nationhood and statehood it would be very tricky for a lot, you know, for a Japanese person, if they're asked about their ethnicity, they would really look at you in, a, in an odd way because it'd be a question that they wouldn't have faced uh, very often. Um, so that's, so you can get these things that are uh, the ethnic, the national, and the state which line up that are very congruent, um, but not in every case. Would you say the same okay. thing would apply if they lived abroad? No, once they move, you know, if the Japanese, if a Japanese person moved to Brazil or the U.S. That's exactly what I was thinking because right. I came across and they, they see themselves or they consider themselves as Brazilian. So I don't know in if it would be the national. Well, they would see themselves probably their ethnicity as Japanese, Japanese, but their nation and their state would be Brazilian. So that's probably the difference that you'd get, unless you know, it's possible that if someone was a recent immigrant, they might still identify with Japan as their nation and their state. Uh, so this is partly about identity. I'm talking here about individuals and how they relate to these units. Uh, but there's also the units themselves and how they relate. It's not exactly the same question as, as we just saw in this example where one individual might identify uh, as Japanese or they might identify as Brazilian as their nation. So you can have that. Individuals have, more, have a choice in this sense. Um, so the, the, one of the questions I want to ask today is how we get to this, this situation of multi-ethnicity and multinationality within a state, which is really the, the central defining issue for the study of nationalism is, and, and for ethnic conflict is this imperfect overlap between uh, the ethnic group, the nation, and the state. If every country in the world was like, say, Korea, where you had that overlap of state nation ethnic group, you wouldn't have issues of ethnic conflict. You could still have national conflict, but you wouldn't have the ethnic conflict. Uh, so how do we get the formation then of multi-ethnic states? And, and as we, as I mentioned, that's about 95% of the world's states have at least one, uh, have at least two ethnic groups, that is. Uh, we'll take the situation here of the Caucasus, Caucasus region, which is uh, particularly multi-ethnic in its composition. And so why, how do we arrive at a situation like the Caucasus, where you have uh, 
Chechens and, and English and South Ossetians and others. So you have all these different groups. Um, it's an interesting question, which I'll return to in a minute. I just wanted to sort of give you a brief rundown. Um, if we look at the world, in 1972, there were 132 states. I'll show you a, a more recent graph in a minute. But in 1972, even in 1972, prior to the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, prior to the breakup of the USSR, uh, still only 9% of states were ethnically homogenous. But it's also worth pointing out that only 30% didn't have an ethnic majority. So that's kind of the main point to take away there, is that most states have an ethnic majority, but very few states are homogenous in that sense. Um, and so we're, we're interested particularly in explaining this situation, but also in explaining why some places are more ethnically diverse than others. I'm mainly interested here in, in native diversity, not so much immigrant diversity, which is more of a, an issue in the West, but it's less of an issue in most of the world. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, sorry, where does England fall in that? Sorry, in 72. England would be... Uh, somewhere between these two. So it's the English are like three quarters. So they would be kind of on the borderline of these two. Right? So. Um. I was just curious about the last point there. Yeah. 70 states contain a majority group that makes up less than half. That's right. Especially with regards to Canada and US. I mean, what's the majority group um, that doesn't make more than half? Um, that doesn't make more than half? Well, it depends how you count the ethnicity. If you if you count it as white, then you're right that both countries have a white majority. But if you count it in terms of let's say white Anglo-Saxon Protestant as an ethnic group, then it's less than half. So that's it. Just it's it's partly how you how you split the numbers, and, and because you can't have identities within identities, um, so you can be. Is, is that the result of splitting it as white Anglo-Saxon? Yeah, Protestant, exactly. <coughs> Right, and, and, and also whether, so in Canada you'd have also got the English-French split within, um, but even amongst the English-speaking white population, you've got different ethnic origins, so yeah, it depends how you, what you're counting as ethnicity. I think now, if we look at the next, um, hang on, no. yeah, I mean, I think a lot of analysts would say today, well, actually, you know, for all intents and purposes, those countries do have an ethnic majority, especially, well, the U.S., it would be about two-thirds white, and that, that would be the, the significant category. But in 1960, you know, when John F. Kennedy was elected president, it was a big issue that he was Catholic. You know, that was a, you know, it was a huge issue. So there was a, a bigger split in the population that's now no longer so important. Okay. So... Now, that's just a very crude approximation of those statistics because all, we can always, if we actually look closely at a country, uh, you know, you have this what's called hidden diversity. So you just touched on it a little bit. So you might have a country that ostensibly has a, say, white majority, but if you probe down, you might find divisions, Protestant, Catholic, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon or non-Anglo-Saxon. So you can actually find sub-layers uh, sub which make the, the, um, the picture even more diverse. Uh, and in fact, some anthropologists suggest that there may be as many 6,000 different uh, ethnic groups in the world, 6,000 language groups. <coughs> so if we think about the world as having 
200 odd states, uh, 6,000 ethnic groups, there's going to be a, an ethnic issue in pretty well every state because there are very far too few states to go around for the number of ethnic groups. In fact, on the island of New Guinea, uh, it's estimated as many as 1,000 languages exist. So now those are kind of accreting into smaller numbers of ethnic groups than, than 1,000, but it just shows you the potential for uh, large-scale ethnic diversity um, that cannot be accommodated. It will be very difficult, almost impossible, to create a state for each separate little ethnic group for a whole host of reasons. And so we have to think of ways of amalgamating uh, different ethnic groups within particular states. Um, I'm just going to I'm just going to skip by this point uh, for a minute and, and just speak to the question of the formation of multi-ethnic territory. So what are the factors that lead some parts of the world to be more ethnically diverse than others? Why is the Caucasus or Tanzania or Nigeria, why are these extremely diverse countries whereas Japan, um, Botswana, much less so. You know, what, is it that, that, what is it about certain countries that seems to lead to uh, ethnic diversity? Any, any thoughts on that question? Um, why are, leaving aside immigration for a minute, but putting that to one side, why are... Yeah. yeah. Right. That's a very good point. You can see that here, right? In... Uh, the Caucasus. It's a very mountainous, rugged region. And so what's happened is you've had different languages and cultures forming in their separate valleys and pockets. And that's one of the reasons why you get more groups. Yeah? Someone might argue that, for example, if those um, um, nations were allowed to, to have, uh, determine themselves whether they would be part of one state or their own state, they right. might choose differently. So then, therefore, then we look at multi-ethnicity within those little nations. So um, perhaps right. now they're on, it's only multi-ethnic, the Russian Federation, because right. it expanded right. in a kind of a colonial or imperialistic kind of way. Right. Okay. So where you have uh, political units that conquer other units yeah. become more multi-ethnic. Yes. The bigger. Yeah. That's you know, right. That's a good point. You know, yeah. Like a similar point to that, but differently. There could be, like, if you like, these different tribes or regions or whatever unite against a common foe and therefore form their own confederation, if you like that, then makes them one state of different ethnic groups. So they don't have to be conquered by somebody. They could be just fighting the same person. Okay, so they so mobilize like against yeah. mobilize against the common foe. Yeah, that's yeah. another way. I mean, one thing I would stress, there's two things going on here, right? There is the there is the underlying, if you like, the underlying ethnic diversity the ethnic diversity underneath, and then you have the number of political units up above. So you over, overlay the political units on top of the, the existing ethnic diversity that's already there, which I think the, the point about geography is very important. And in fact, a lot of recent research, in fact, research I've even been involved in, has examined this very point and found that rough terrain is extremely important in explaining diversity. So New Guinea is you know, a series of mountainous jungle valleys and very, very difficult terrain to pass through. And that's one of the reasons you get so many different languages in New Guinea. But the other point is also well taken that it's, it also has to do with politics and the way the political units have 
matched or not matched up with these particular, uh, with the, the different ethnic groups underneath. So it's a combination. Um, there are other factors involved, one of which is trade routes. So if you think about the Silk Road, the old Silk Road that runs through Afghanistan, for example. Afghanistan is a very diverse area that, that has had migrations of people over history going through it. Same with the Levant, sort of Lebanon, a uh, very diverse area. Um, same sort of dynamic. To some extent, Switzerland, which has, of course, got four different language groups within it, is, was also a sort of transit area between uh, the North Atlantic and the Mediterranean. So that, too, might have been an area where, you're going, where you would get more diversity. It's also very rugged, so it has the rough terrain. Um, so these are just some of the factors uh, that are involved. Something we'll talk about more in a minute is modernization. When did the modern nation state, the modern state, arrive in an area? So that actually, why does that matter? Um, well, anyone can have, have a guess? Why, why might the, uh, the timing of the arrival of modernity matter for uh, how diverse a country is? Well, go ahead, yeah. Uh, just um, because of industrialization and, and the need for um, nations, uh, well, it's an economic thing, basically, to um, sort of compete economically, it's better to be a larger unit, so to represent national interests rather than, sorry, state interests, rather than have lots of groups buying for the same reason. Okay, so so maybe did you want to add to that, or do you just uh, no? Wouldn't transport make ethnic groups more easily integrate into the state? Yeah, I mean, I think you're both yeah speaking to that same point that that with did you want did you want to? Or I thought I saw hands. Uh, no, you're right. So so yeah, the movement of people, um, particularly to cities, is one way of breaking. It tends to break down some of that diversity. Um, countries that are late in the game of modernizing, such as, let's say, New Guinea, um, do have more, they have more ethnic diversity because they have had less time. And some of the studies, um, if I can jump ahead here, yeah. I was just going to show you um, <coughs> some work that I've actually done, but I've also been involved actually very recently on a, on a panel where some people were looking at the effect of urbanization growth of cities uh, in reducing the amount of diversity in a particular country. So it's urbanization and modernization that do tend to, tend to lead to reduction in the amount of ethnic diversity in a state. Uh, whereas conquest, imperialism, colonialism, for example, where you simply draw political borders that are not related necessarily to the ethnic borders underneath, will, can lead very often to more multi-ethnicity. Yes, that might be a, a mo that might be a motive for migration, but it it wouldn't affect necessarily levels of ethnic diversity, unless unless your argument is that uh, I don't know maybe when they arrive somewhere you think that the, the area well, becomes. No, I mean, I'm thinking like for example if you look at Bangladesh, 
Right. The loss of land, the annual loss of land because of the environmental impact. Yeah. They're migrating to other places because there's physically not enough land for them to farm and live as a nation state. Well, well, one point there is that the, the places that have a lot of out-migration tend to be more homogenous because no one different is moving in. It's just people moving in. So that's... Yeah. All right, so we'll just... Um, just, yeah, again, just to look at this as a chart that uh, goes over this to, in some detail. But this is a plot of the countries of the world. Uh, according down here on the bottom to the date when the largest ethnic group in the country was founded. Now, that's a rough date. That's not an exact science. But trying to get a sense of the foundation date of a country. And, and this here is an index of how um, the percentage of the population made up of the ethnic majority. So here you have 100% belonging to the largest group. And here you have zero. And along here, you have the date at which a group first emerged. And there is, it's not a hard and fast relationship, but there's a, some, you can see some interesting relationships. One of which is there's a loose tendency. It sort of is shaped a bit more like this. Um, trust me, it works statistically. But the argument there is that, broadly speaking, the, a nation like Greece, which is, has an ethnic group that has a very old foundation date, tends to have had a longer time to assimilate groups in its neighborhood to it. So there is an effect whereby um, some of the older ethnic groups tend to be uh, in states that are more homogenous. The other effect, too, is that some of the older ethnic groups, not all, some, have had an opportunity to form their own states, states which correspond more closely to themselves as an ethnic group, whereas if you have a state imposed on you by, let's say, imperialism, the state boundaries may have very little to do, often have very little to do with the ethnic boundaries. And that's true particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where you get a lot of states. A lot of the states down here in the, in the very diverse category are, you can see Congo, Tanzania, Cameroon, Somalia. They're basically almost all in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, with the exception of New Guinea, of course, which is the most uh, diverse. But there is a link then between this high level of diversity and how long you've been around. And this is partly also linked to how old your state is. The older states, like France, France in particular is a good example of a, a state, because it's been around for a long time, has had a longer period in which it can assimilate actively uh, minorities. In fact, France had a very strong policy in the 19th century of um, making it illegal. Not illegal, but basically in schools, you weren't allowed to speak your dialect. Bernay and, and uh, Alsatian and other, other dialects. Basically, you had to <coughs> subsume that and learn only French. And they were because they got started in that game early enough, people were willing to buy into it. And so you actually got a very large amount of assimilation of native groups in France. And so now, those groups are much smaller, uh, if they exist at all. Provence, for example, in south of France, used to be a very distinct <coughs> ethnic area. That now would just be a region of France. So French, the French were quite successful in assimilating. Not totally successful. We can see that with there are parts of Brittany, for example, um, the Corsicans. There are little areas of France where there still is a, a sense of distinct identity, by, uh, distinct ethnic identity. But for the most part, because it's an old 
established state, they were able to achieve a digestion, if you like, reduction of diversity. So they were able to move up this scale. Um, so anyway, just some, just to give you a sense of some of the research that's going on. Uh, in keeping with that point about modernization, one of the things that modernization does, capitalism, the growth of the state, is to, um, to integrate populations and to lower the levels of ethnic diversity within a state, particularly if this happens at an early stage. Uh, so one of the ways this occurs is through um, modernization's deepening of state systems through state integration, by integrating the population into a common language, common education, common military often. Uh, this is a way of breaking down those particular regional ethnic differences and trying to get people to assimilate into the ethnic core of the country. Um, and it works in different ways. However, the point about modernization also is that it stimulates ethnic awareness. So it's not just the case that modernization breaks down ethnic differences and, and you automatically become more homogenous as you modernize. Uh, there's also a counter to that, which is that modern ideas of nationalism and liberalism, the ideas of uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau um, and Herder, the German romantics, which talk about the importance of each nation having its own state and that you must be, have your own, uh, that, that people must rule themselves, that people should not be ruled by foreigners, should not be ruled by kings. These sorts of ideas about popular sovereignty and nationalism start to penetrate into um, many of the less developed parts of the world. So they be, to a large extent, these ideas emerge in the European Enlightenment, in France in particular. And then they're transported around the world. And, and this stimulates, then, the awareness of smaller peoples. So all of a sudden, groups which might at one time have been content to submit to the Russian Empire. Uh, all of a sudden, you might get a Chechen nationalist movement. You might get movements of ethnic awareness by intellectuals in the peripheries, because they now understand that actually, according to this ideology of nationalism, it's no longer so natural and so normal to be ruled by a foreign monarch or a foreign country. We might, we might want to think about rebelling. Uh, and it then becomes a bit of a race, if you think about it, between the center, if you think about Moscow uh, and the influence of, of Russian culture moving outward from Moscow. Well, we, could, we could rerun this with any other empire. It could be the Habsburg Empire, uh, Vienna, the influence coming from that. So you have the, if the state which is trying to homogenize and modernize its population. Uh, and at the same time, you have these groups in the periphery which are becoming aware of themselves and starting to mount nationalist movements, and in some cases, rebellions under the influence of the modern idea of nationalism. So now what modern modernity is doing is it's providing two forces, one of which is a homogenizing force, and the other one is a diversifying force. Yeah. You know you've got North uh, Central, I can't pronounce it. Why did Russia then invade Georgia? Because you said it had Russian, I mean, not too long ago. Right. Because it had Russian ethics in Georgia. 
and you've got all those other ethnic states there. Why did sorry? Why Russia did Russia invade Georgia? Georgia not yes, too long ago because there were Russian like, settlers or people or ethnic Russians that lived in that part of Georgia, so they invaded Georgia to protect them. That's what they said. Well, it was not. I mean, that invasion was more. It wasn't really quite for that reason. It was more uh, about uh, the politics the of because there's Abkhazia, which is a Sorry? Yeah, the, Abkhazia was, a, was a, a region which isn't on this map, actually. Yeah. Or is it? Oh, here we are, number seven, Abkhazia, yeah. So in Abkhazia, you have a, a George, significant Georgian population there, which has basically been forced out. Partly because, George, I mean, there's geopolitics here, so they're, they're seen as getting close to the West. Georgia's seen as getting close to the West. Um, and Russia's client, Abkhazia is kind of a client of Russia. So Russia sort of backed Abkhazia against Georgia. So that's the sort of international, that's an international dimension of the conflict. So it's not so much about Russian settlers, actually, as it is about um, Abkhazia as a, as a Russian client. Um, so it's a bit complicated, but basically, because oddly enough, the Russians and the Georgians are closer in terms of religion. Uh, but anyway, so th th that's, that's, the, uh, that's the region for you. Um, so there's this, this race between uh, modernization from the state and the dissemination of modern ideas to the periphery. And if the periphery actually is, is if the state is a weak state and not, and is a late modernizing state, uh, and the peripheries are in some ways advanced, that's when you typically don't get a, an assimilation, a homogenization. Um, sorry. <laughs> Uh, so just staying with us for a minute, an example of this, if you compare France and Spain, Spain you have a state which was, was to some degree a centralizing state, but was not as effective uh, in terms of imposing a homogenous national culture on the population as the French state was. And it was also to some extent an empire in decline, so it had less prestige than the French state in the 19th century. So whereas the French were able to secure a greater degree of assimilation. In the case of Spain, that was uh, not as effective. And so you see, for example, the Catalans and Basques in Spain have a much higher degree of national self-awareness and national uh, self-determination politics than is the case for those same groups in France, where they're much more accommodated to the state. Um, so it's not the only factor. but So the question is, parts of the world that modernize late, you tend also to have more, um, more diversity. Uh, the point about, um, if we go back to the Caucasus, you can see that these groups all tend to be territorially compact. So they could be the nucleus, the nuclei of nations, because they have a compact territory. Uh, and territory is key to the definition of a nation. So you can imagine these emerging. In many cases, they already have nationalist movements. However, in, a, in another situation, such as South Africa, where some of the groups don't have that compact territory, particularly the Afrikaners, but not only the Afrikaners, um, there you might see that ethnic politics not expressed in the form of separatism, but expressed in the form of a contest for the state. Same thing in Lebanon. Lebanon, yes, groups sort of have, there is sort of a Maronite Christian area, Lebanon Mountain, but for the most part, the Shia, uh, the Maronites, the Sunnis are contesting control of the state of 
Lebanon. So they're contesting for control of the state. They're not really looking to secede. Same thing in Syria, the Alawis. Uh, it's a contest for control of the state of Syria. It's not about Alawi separatism. Yeah. Belgium, maybe? Well, the, well, Belgium, you've got the, uh, it's, you do have, I think, compact territories for the Flemish and Walloons. So there, there is a separatist movement amongst the Flemish. Um, what I'm thinking about are groups that don't have that compact territory, and so they're more contesting for control of the state, which happens a lot in Africa, by the way. Or you can have a combination, a group which has a homeland base, but isn't really interested in separatism and, and actually gets into coalition with other groups to try and get control of the state. That happens particularly in uh, very diverse societies like Tanzania and Nigeria. So you get these coalitions of groups rather than separatism. You might also get separatism uh, where you have territorialized groups. Uh, so we talked about multi-ethnicity within states. One form this can take is, as in Britain with the Welsh, the English, the Scottish, you can have a, a multinational situation, multi-nation state. Um, I've already gone through this point. And the question then within a state, if you have multiple nationalisms, so if within a particular state such as such as the Russian Federation, if you have multiple nationalisms, you can you can get a situation as we see in Chechnya where the indigenous or native ethnic groups with a compact territorial base forms the nucleus of a movement for national self-determination, which can take the form of violent separatism. Uh, it will tend to be the native or the primary ethnic groups with the territorial base that are involved in separatism. In fact, statistical studies show that this is, is almost exclusively the case that nationalist movements have been the result of territorially compact native groups. Now, there are two semi-exceptions to this, one of which is um, concerns the Jews of Israel who migrated in and subsequently formed a nationalist movement to break away. The other uh, exception, to some extent, are the Mahajirs in Pakistan who kind of left India after partition and formed a, a dominant group within Pakistan and are engaged in. But there, you could argue with the Mahajirs, it's more about control of the Pakistani state rather than a separatist movement. So it's really generally the case that it, these are uh, primary ethnic groups with a territorial base. And the territorial base functions in two ways. One, it's, it's a mental map. It's a kind of homeland of what you would like to see as your territory, but also it has a practical military application in that it's much easier to rebel militarily if you have a compact homeland where you can hide amongst your militia, you can hide amongst your own people, uh, you can defend a territory more easily. So there are also military reasons for this. Um, the other alternative perhaps to secessionism is in the happy outcome a sort of multi-ethnic democracy. So it's not always the case that the modernization of those primary ethnic groups leads to violent secession. It might lead to peaceful secessionist movements like the Scottish or Quebec examples, uh, or it could lead to uh, a South African situation of multi-ethnic democracy. Um, I want to say something just to, at the end here about multi-ethnic nations. We talked briefly about a situation where you could have a nation, a national identity, and yet have many different ethnic groups. It's possible to feel 
let's say, attachment to the American nation and be of Irish ethnicity or uh, Chinese ethnicity. Likewise, perhaps to the even now to the English nation, there was a time when, I think not too long ago, when basically the argument was, well, to be English, you more or less had to be of white English ancestry um, to, be, to be a member of the English nation. But I think uh, nowadays it seems to be the case that you can actually have different ethnic origins and still be able to say you're English in a way and feel English. So that suggests perhaps that uh, we have a situation where you can have one nation with, an, with a, a series of different ethnic groups inhabiting it. Um, this B is really a representation of what that might look like if you have a bunch of immigrant groups, maybe it's the United States, uh, all identifying with the nation. They have their ethnic identity, but on top of that, their national identity. Um, now, there are further issues about that. So you could say, well, which identity do they feel more strongly attached to? So that, that's a salience, what they call a salience issue. That's a separate issue, but it's simply for the purposes of this lecture uh, sufficient to say that you can have a, a nation that is multi-ethnic. The other type of multi-ethnic nation, this is more like Indonesia, where you have many different, uh, and to some extent India, but more perhaps Indonesia, where you've got native ethnic groups, or Tanzania, many different native ethnic groups with their own homelands, but they still identify with the nation as a whole. Um, so that's another model for the multi-ethnic nation. So, you know, how is it that we, that we get a multi-ethnic nation? There are a number of different methods, a no number of different reasons that these develop. One, in the case of Mauritius, which is a very rare example, um, it's a very rare example because all of the groups in Mauritius arrived more or less around the same time. There were no native Mauritians and subsequent immigrant groups. It was basically a case that you had... Um, you know, European, South Asian, East Asian, African groups arriving uh, roughly around the same time or within the span of a century or so. So because all the groups arrived at once, they all felt Mauritian, but at the same time they had their own ethnic identities. Um, so that's one model. Another model is the American model where you have got a settler group, in this case Anglo-Saxon Protestant group, which settles the country similarly with Canada, or with English-speaking Canada and Australia. Uh, but then subsequent waves of immigration bring in uh, diversity. So you can actually get the new immigrants assimilating to the national culture. They assimilate to the national culture, but they also retain their ethnic identity. So you get this multi-ethnic nationhood. But it's a very tricky balance to maintain if you think about it. To have a nation that is multi-ethnic is difficult because on the one hand, if people identify more with the nation, they're going to intermarry and the ethnicity is going to break down over time. So you, you get a disappearance of that ethnic diversity. Or on the other hand, if the ethnicity is important, then the ethnic ties tend to, tend to break, break up the nation. So you have these different factors at work. And so I think it w it's safe to argue that in fact, um, multi-ethnic nationhood is, is rarer than, say, uh, multi-ethnic statehood. So it's, there are only some nations that are able to pull this off successfully. Uh, okay. Um, last slide that I'm going to speak to here is this question of 
modernization and ethnic separatism links into nationalism theory. Uh, so the question of why ethnic separatism, for a modernist, their claim is that it is uh, modernity that is creating identity from above. So it's political factors. The state is integrating. It's trying to integrate everybody together. But the peripheries, it's peripheral elites who want a share of the wealth and power that are rebelling against that state centralization. So for political and economic reasons, those peripheral elites are busy inventing claims. We, the Cornish, are a separate nation, so we're going to separate from the UK. An example being so that they're, they're looking to the past and inventing. Now, I'm not saying that's what the Cornish are doing, but I'm saying that the, the modernists would claim that, these, that the, the past is being used and invented and created in the name of the interests of a set of political elites. Ethno-symbolists or perennialists would argue, in fact, that it's the underlying ethnic diversity as shaped by factors such as geography. Uh, that underlying difference, which is important and is codified in terms of ethnic identity, and that is really the basis upon which the nationalist movement springs. So it's from that ethnic substrate that you then get the uh, subsequent national 